Hello, friends, and welcome to the Deconstructor of Fun This Week in Games podcast. Now, we have a pretty awesome episode. We have fantastic guest, Eric Suford, and we go into a little bit of a battle with Eric Kress uh, regarding the latest Call of Duty. Uh, but before before we jump in, I want to give a shout-out to Game Refinery. Now, Game Refinery has come came up with the contextual games metadata that improves ad targeting. And why is this important? Well, you see, a lot of ad networks, as we know, are struggling in the battle against Facebook and Google in mobile games advertising space. And this is just due to the fact that most ad networks have insufficient targeting capabilities and they lack the first-party audience data that Facebook and Google have. And there is a downside with Google and Facebook. Sure, they're great sources of, of excellent users, but acquiring high-quality users is often very expensive with all the top games bidding for them. So, uh, Game Refinery has developed automated contextual metadata. That's a really hard word, contextual metadata. And the results are really powerful. First of all, Game Refinery's customers have been able to increase the amount of high LTV and high retention to users acquired through ad networks by using this metadata. Uh, with the Game Refinery's data, the ad networks have been able to create an accessible pool of relevant audience by finding the most relevant games for user acquisition. Thirdly, Game Refinery's automated data provides an objective data set that measures a breadth of features from core gameplay, look, and ambience of the game to estimated player demographics. And fourthly, based on over 400 data points automatically analyzed per game, Game Refinery has created an affinity model that is able to automatically generate a long list of games that are optimal fit for UA targeting for each given game specifically. So, don't believe me, connect with Game Refinery. They have an awesome case study with Future Play uh, that shows the power of automated contextual metadata in user acquisition. And I just know that these guys will be more than happy to give you a demo of their fantastic platform that is used by some of the biggest game companies around the world. So connect with Game Refinery, let them help you out with your user acquisition needs and hopes and wishes. And without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, Deconstructor of Funds, This Week in Games. Everyone, welcome to Twig 51. Today we've got a pretty big crew here with us today, but we're going to be covering a lot of very cool articles. The first is the future of mobile growth teams by Mobile Dev Memo. The second is acquisition and conversion costs threaten a mobile bust by gamesindustry.biz. Third is Call of Duty Mobile is live after a troubled launch. Fourth and fifth have to do with transparent loot boxes, so CSGO in France and Rocket League Blueprints. And finally, Facebook announces Horizon, a VR massive multiplayer world by TechCrunch. And today on the podcast with us, we actually have a special guest host, Eric Sufert from Mobile Dev Memo. Hey, welcome, Eric. Hey, thank you so much for having me. Uh, and you're not totally new to uh, the Deconstructor Fund podcast, right? So we did a special podcast with you, which I'll link in the podcast show notes, but it was great to have you on before and great to have you on now. But for those in the audience who may not know 
about you and your background. Could you speak a little bit about yourself and also about Mobile Dev Memo? Yeah, sure. So I've been running Mobile Dev Memo for about almost 10 years. Um, it started out kind of as more of a personal blog. Um, and maybe not 10 years is too long. It's maybe like seven. Uh, but uh, it's been been going for a pretty long time. Um, I uh, kind of started my career at Skype um, right after grad school. Um, was there doing analytics. Um, thought the freemium business model was really, really cool. So I kind of looked around to see who was doing it kind of um, in a more sophisticated way than Skype was and saw that all these gaming companies up in Finland were, were doing really interesting stuff with freemium on Facebook canvas and starting to move into mobile. So I got a job with Miska actually. Um, we worked together for kind of a brief period at uh, digital chocolate U uh, <laughs> uh, Dean <laughs> Hawkins um, and, uh, and got into gaming that way and then worked um, at a couple of different startups, um, then got a job and then kind of transitioned over in, into marketing roles at a company called Wuga, which is a, um, casual game developer based in uh, Berlin. They just got acquired by Playtica um, early this year. Um, I was head of marketing there, launched Jelly Splash um, and a couple other games, uh, moved all the all the portfolio um, that existed on Canvas over to mobile. And then I joined Rovio as the VP of user acquisition, uh, was there through the launch of Angry 2 and the movie. Um, then I kind of started, I started a company building a uh, platform for mobile marketing analytics, sold that to a company called Network, joined them in San Francisco, um, and then launched my latest uh, startup in April, which is a baby uh, named Gustav. Uh, and so I'm kind of, uh, I left my role in April and have been uh, focusing on that 100% of the time since uh, since April. Awesome. Okay, so yeah, sounds like you've been all over the place. And uh, uh, Adam, did you overlap with Eric Suford at Ruga? Oh, yeah. Yeah, okay. I had a great time. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right, jumping in. So the first article we're going to cover is The Future of Mobile Growth Teams by Mobile Dev Memo. And we have the author, Eric Sufert, with us here today. So it'll be great to talk to him a little bit more. But in this article, Eric Sufert argues that experimentation is actually at the heart of developing a well-performing growth team. But the process of experimentation, if you look at a lot of the current companies in the industry, is kind of siloed within different specializations at many of those companies. So, for example, there could be a user acquisition team doing media buying and conducting growth experiments related to UA, but there may also be like a separate product team doing product growth experiments within a product or PM team. So. Eric argues that increasingly in the future, these teams will need to be better coordinated and integrated to be more effective. Then even further, another argument Eric makes is that within UA, you can think of the team structure, at least in today's market, as kind of like a pyramid with a group of sort of at the bottom layer as media buyers at the base, kind of a creative development team as a somewhat smaller layer above. And then at the very top is a smaller data science and analytics team as that sort of smallest top layer. And the, the argument that Eric makes is that two things will occur for growth teams in the future. And the first is that the UA and product growth team will eventually converge into a single team. And secondly, the acquisition team structure will invert. So it'll invert from kind of like, you know, regular pyramid to kind of like an upside down pyramid. And finally, Eric talks about what he believes are the key modern functional components for growth, including media mix modeling, content personalization, event signal measurement, and creative experimentation. And so 
Now that because we've got Eric Sufert here, I, I thought it'd be great to actually uh, ask him a few questions about the the article. So, Eric Sufert, first of all, did I characterize this article properly in terms of summarizing the key points? Mm, yes, that was uh, that was masterful. Thank you. <laughs> okay, great. Uh, in terms of the optimal structure with respect to the the sort of inverted triangle and uh, the UA and product uh, team integration. Can you characterize a bit more about what would be some of the benefits from both of these structural changes? What, what would happen or what would be the benefit of, of doing these things? Yeah, sure. So I think it's helpful to, to provide a little context here, which would probably defy the, uh, the, the dictate of brevity uh, that was given before we started. So I would just say that I wrote an article kind of about the context to all of this two weeks ago about creative management. So if people want to read that, um, it's pretty long, but it's uh, if you go to mobile dev memo, it's at the top, just like creative management, something, something, something. Um, but basically, the kind of precursor to all of this is that, you know, all uh, media buying is kind of shifted to like kind of algorithmic campaign management. Facebook and Google have built these products that are meant to kind of reinforce uh, the walls on their walled gardens. And so they've kind of storehoused all this data. And, and as a result, they've sort of like built this virtuous cycle of like you give them more data they get better at managing your campaigns and then you give them more data and so with all of your data kind of like um built uh with all of your data sort of like siloed into their systems and 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 like kind of purposed for their campaign management you're you're sort of like um they've been able to like uh eat up more and more and more of advertiser budgets um and so that's just changed the way the teams need to operate now right if that that the, the landscape changed and um and so the, the mechanics of doing media buying on mobile have changed and now teams are changing, right? And so what is help? So then if you think about like, well, okay, Facebook's doing all the media buying. So they're, they're kind of managing all the audience development and targeting for, for my app. Um, and they're managing the funnel into the app. Like, what do I actually have control over, right? And that's not like from a, uh, a Marxist standpoint of like everyone has to have a job, but it's more just like, well, okay, how how do I manage a system, right? Because they're not perfect at it. Like I know the app, they know the audience targeting, but um, how do I sort of like then uh, get to the very top of the funnel, right? So like if I can sort of presuppose uh, audience targeting via my knowledge of the app, and then I can validate that in the app, then I can sort of like better manage this big Facebook beast. But you don't do that with media buying. You do that with creative, like rapid mass scale creative experimentation. And you do that with with all of the sort of like down funnel events analysis and, and profile building and user segmentation that happens uh, from in-app data. Um, and so that's, that's kind of the medium length story of, of how this landscape is evolving. And, but I think the inverted pyramid is just to say that like, well, media buying, you might have one person or two people doing Facebook now. Um, and you might have one person doing UAC. Uh, whereas that might've been like a massive team two or three years ago, but you do need a lot of people doing the data science stuff which uh, you see this focused in a lot of companies at price personalization and doing like really, really, really early funnel um, monetization offers um, and just making those really, really high performance, which, which requires a lot of work. Um, and then creative, big creative teams or lots of creative outsourcers just churning out tons and tons and tons of creative, constantly <clears throat> refreshing the creative before it saturates and experimenting with totally radical, wild new ideas to make sure that the Facebook algorithm reaches every possible segment of the audience. Right. Okay. And then just one last question for me is that, that you had touched upon in, in your article, and I definitely recommend folks to, to read your article for more depth, but maybe you could just briefly touch upon these, uh, the, the four modern functional components for growth. 
Yeah, so media mix modeling is is not a new thing, but it's kind of new to mobile, right? So if you think back to like two, three years ago, people did non-direct response stuff, but not it wasn't like a big part of the media mix, right? So like you'd have a, a company that was doing, let's say they're doing a pretty healthy budget of like two and a half million a month on marketing, right? Probably two million of that was DR and maybe 500K was other stuff. And even, even at that split, it, that was probably a company with like more branded IP and stuff. Um, if you're like one of these companies with like a no brand game that's just doing really well, it, it would be maybe 99% or 100% um, direct response. What's changing now is that to get outside of the Facebook, uh, Google dominated ecosystem, you kind of have to go out of home. There's nowhere else to go. They've eaten up all the growth. So they, they have most of the market share right now. They have most of the market, uh, Facebook and Google combined, but they have all the growth. So all the sort of, all the kind of like um, new opportunities that are happening in mobile, they get hoovered up by Facebook and Google. And so, you know, if you want to escape that, if you want to try to, you know, uh, market elsewhere, there's nowhere else on mobile. You have to go kind of out of out of home or, or just non-direct response. And there's a lot of there's a lot of digital non-direct response. So how do you measure that? Right. So that's not like wholly measurable. That's not something that your attribution provider will tell you, like this user came from this place. So you have to come up with like statistical models that, that tell you, like, it's likely that this user came from this source, um, even if that was clickable. Right. So even if it was clickable, it may not have been totally trackable um, or maybe there was like a time lag or maybe there's like some there's a lot of different factors that can play into it or it was out of home. So there's just no click. That's going to become like increasingly important. Like, how do you just spend money? You're spending money is the easy part um, and setting up these campaigns and working with like a we didn't get any type uh, company that, that gives you this whole like big, uh, impressive looking uh, uh uh, campaign strategy but that's that's the easy part i mean i think people think that's really hard but it's, it's actually really easy you get to go to these really fun uh meetings with uh with creative agencies uh you know chock full of like quirky people and you get to drink like kombucha tea and and they get to walk you through like <laughs> this uh this really exciting plan where they're gonna do something in new york city and then they're gonna have all this uh people dressed as characters or whatever that's easy what's hard is measuring the impact of that as an aside, I think those companies like that that's hard because uh, if, if that was easy too, then they, they probably wouldn't have much business left. But, um, but modeling all that in, like a, in, a, in, a, in a comprehensive way that gives you a sense of like where your budget's best spent, um, that's really difficult. And so that's where that the sort of like data science layer comes in. Content personalization, I kind of already touched upon, but like the A-B testing stuff, I think people are just moved on from that, uh, or at least the, like the really sophisticated companies have. Um, it's all, I think right now people are really focused on like price personalization, getting like, you know, making sure that, uh, price discrimination is in place, um, that people can pay what they want and you just don't get there with AB testing. And I, I, we didn't touch upon that conflict between, you know, product growth teams and, and like sort of marketing teams, but that's, that's a real big problem at a lot of companies. I think if you look at companies like Uber, you look at companies like Airbnb, they have these product teams that are just hundred percent focused on AB tests. Uh, that that can kill product growth. And those are probably two bad examples because they did well despite that. But like, there's a lot of companies that didn't do well despite that. And so, um, and you know, who, who knows what I don't know? Who knows what those companies would have been without this? But like, I think people think that the product growth team is a solution for like high cost of acquisition, but it's not. You can run into like serious um, design problems if you're just A/B testing everything without an eye towards what kind of traffic mix you're bringing in. Event signal measurement. That's just basically. Um, leaning into this kind of algorithmic uh new world order where you're measuring which events in the funnel best give signal to facebook or google about the quality of the user and the earlier in the funnel you can get that the faster that campaign can be optimized now some people say that doesn't matter as much because if a campaign kind of is going to run for three six months just getting it optimized in one day versus three is not that important but the companies that are doing this stuff at scale 
It's really more about the creative that's working and the ad set that's working. And so then that stuff gets refreshed all the time. Because if you're, if you're spending a scale, you're probably utilizing a creative structure that like the one I talked about in the article that I mentioned. And so then you're just dumping new creatives in every couple of days, right? And so it's very, very important to get that event signal measurement right. Uh, and then creative experimentation is exactly what I just talked about. Just, just constantly trying new stuff, making sure that Facebook has all the ammunition it needs to reach all the audience it can. Cool. Any other comments? I have, I have some questions. I mean, I, I, I read these articles a couple of times, and especially there was a link in this article that goes through to A-B testing can kill product growth. And Eric, you kind of mentioned it briefly. So I have two questions uh, kind of zooming out. So uh, number one is I think a lot of people who read this, you know, the one thing that they're interested in it is like, what should the organization st- organization structure then be? Because when I look at the, uh, the graph that is in the article, uh, you talk about integrated teams and growth functions across the user life cycle. And there's in a way there's the user life cycle that, that goes on and it starts with the creative and there's a data science and engineering and implementation media buying on the other side. And the other side is, is well, actually data science and, and engineering is on both sides, but there's creative and product management on both sides. So in short, I would, I would kind of like be interested in what do you, what do you feel is the best type of organization structure to, to support growth and the user life cycle through that? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. Um, so I think within like the kind of existing kind of job paradigms, um, mm-hmm. you know, if you've got like a growth product lead or sorry, a product product growth lead and a UA lead, I think the product growth lead should report to the UA lead. I think, or I, I think you should have like a, a head of growth that mm-hmm. is going to be more heavily skewed towards doing UA well. Um, so kind of like a UA lead, but maybe they're just a CMO. And I think that the product growth lead should report into that person. And I think there should be like a full picture of what the funnel looks like all the time or at least the product growth lead should have um, incumbent on them it should be that any of these tests have the acquisition channel as a component of success right or as a component of the of the model right so that says Mm -hmm. like any test any test that you do it's got to accommodate for the acquisition source it can't be global it can't be across the app exactly Um, and so and so when you do that you're going to actually a lot of the tests that you're able to run are going to disappear anyway because like a lot of these channels won't have sufficient numbers to do like more than one test now that's so that's under the existing paradigm, right? So that means the product growth lead basically is uh, they're dependent on the acquisition source to do any sort of testing. Now, I think the best way to structure this, and I've seen some companies do this, but this is kind of like mm-hmm. cutting it, cutting edge, I would say, is that that product growth lead doesn't really exist. Now there's a layer that's been built into the app that allows for um, experimentation, but it's not that kind of A/B testing clunky uh, approach. It's more of like a Bayesian thing where this is like a tool that just serves up the best possible um, option at any given point in time based on the user's background. And so that would include a bunch of stuff. That would include UA source, that would include phone type, that would include any kind of behavioral stuff they've done in the app thus far. And so that's not necessarily a person, that's a person managing uh, this system, which is that product manager um, that's at the top of this kind of graph. And, and they're more like a data scientist. They're, they're, they've built this machine and the machine does all the heavy lifting and all the experimentation. Um, and then the UA the UA team is just sending traffic to it. All right. So so this is uh, does this work in a in a like a let's say because you know there's a couple of different examples. There's like Ubers which or Twitters where there's essentially one app and and you know there are a lot of people. Or, and then there's you know game game companies where there's a lot of smaller teams and and kind of like UA is is just not just but just one of the teams and and supporting all of those different teams like would you structure it in the same way where the um the way i understood is the game leads or the product growth leads would report 
or head of growth, which is more like performance marketing type of person. Is that, did I understand correctly? In a gaming studio structure, I don't see a lot of product growth leads in the yeah, exactly. game teams. I, I could be wrong about that. Um, but I think my understanding, I mean, having worked at a bunch of game companies, is that the product, there's not that product growth person doesn't really exist per se at a gaming company. And that would yeah. be more of like uh, the PM. And I think at a, who was just kind of saying like, oh, we should, we should think about the Fatui. Um, and let's do some maybe tests there. Now, I think that I've always seen gaming companies be really pretty good about this. At least the PMs generally have an understanding that UA is their lifeblood. And so they have to be really good at it. And so they have to, like any test they do, they have to make sure that the UA is a factor in whether or not that gets implemented. Right. So and that's been mm-hmm. my experience that PMs are pretty sophisticated about that. So I, I worry yeah. less about that with game teams than I worry about it with like a big consumer app like a twitter or something where there's just like this big growth team is totally siloed out from the ua team okay okay now i understand correctly yeah, yeah. so so yeah i 100 percent agree with with uh with game companies the pms were definitely you know the first thing we look at is the user source because that can fuck up everything or make everything great depending on depending right. on stuff and the second question that i i really had was about a b testing can kill a product growth and and there is is like um how do you, do you feel that that A/B testing is killing product growth at gaming companies? Um, no, I don't think they're necessarily killing growth. So it it can just it it can it can it can kill growth. But like that article wasn't written kind of specific to gaming. I yeah, think yeah, what I yeah. Gaming companies is just that you know you you think about like the Fatui, right? Like so here's here's what I would say about this this idea as it relates to gaming. People would be like, okay, let's let's we gotta we gotta optimize the Fatui, right? Like we're in soft launch, we're we're seeing a, a, a huge amount of churn, like that early, you know, halfway through the first session, mm-hmm. like you know, ten minutes in, we gotta we gotta fix it. And so, let's just run a bunch of A/B tests, right? And like, we, like, even if we even if we sort of stabilize traffic and we say like, hey, we've got a pretty healthy mix, I think this traffic mix looks like what we'll see in global launch, so it's kind of representative. What happens is they do this set of tests, they kind of optimize it for two, it looks good, and then they sort of like they high five each other and say, hey guys, for two is fixed, and then they never look at it again. Um, mm-hmm. and, and the problem with that is like, well, the game changes, the traffic mix changes over time. You know, you, you sat, you get your golden cohort coming through and every single subsequent cohort tends to be worse than that. And it's like the Fatui is just the front facing, like the greeter coming to greet you after you open the door to go into the store, uh, just to extend that metaphor. And so like, that's, that's the most, that, that could be the potentially, the, I mean, I know, I think you disagree about this, uh, Miska, but that could potentially be the most impactful moment for that, that sort of like consumer facing, uh, app. And so, you know, you've got to make sure that it's always optimized because like, all those inputs that you test in a soft launch change. And so I think that A-B testing is more about the mentality. Um, first mm-hmm. of all, A-B testing is just sort of like this discrete process where you're not necessarily exploring everything. But it's also the, just the mentality. It's like, well, hey, we did it. We, we A-B tested this, this. The test results were this. And you'll be in meetings sometimes. It's like, oh, no, no, we did this. We tested this. And somebody will pull up some <laughs> spreadsheet. And it's like, look, we did it. And there's the results. And so this is the right way to do it. And it's like, that was eight months ago. Um, yeah, yeah. I think it's, it's that mentality is, can be like sort of uh, pretty detrimental to like product growth over the long term. I, I, I don't disagree. I disagree on the on the notion of Fatui being that important, but I don't disagree with this approach. I think this is absolutely the, the right type of approach. And I was actually talking to to a bunch of people who are describing um, experience in one of the RPG games. And I'm just giving an example of how this works in in, in real 
life. So uh, throughout the lifetime of this RPG game, there were becoming more and more female players actually to it. But the game team was still developing the game towards the male hardcore audience and putting a lot of competitive features versus the females that were coming in and were actually converting really well and paying. They were all about collection features and they didn't care at all about the meta game. And they were actually starting to get the D30 numbers worse because once they got to those showstoppers, those difficult points in the game, uh, they weren't able to build the right type of teams with the right type of synergies because they only worried about having the cutest or the, or the, the characters that they really liked versus the ones that they need to progress. And this occurred because the game team wasn't focusing on, you know, the type of audience that is coming in and how the demographics of the game were actually changing and did not change the, uh, the approach of development, but continued to do um, features for the first golden cohort. So I 100% agree. I've just never seen Fatui being that powerful, but approach is yes. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's an awesome example. And, and I think, you know, especially with the RPG stuff, because yeah. first of all, your target audience is going to be very, very heavily skewed, right? Demographically at the start. Mm-hmm. And also those games yes. run for years and years and years and make lots and lots and lots of money. And you have to kind of manage that entire uh, user lifecycle throughout, right? So like that, that's a, I think that's a really, really great example. Okay, thanks. Um, but yeah, cool. uh, JK, do you want to move to the next one? So yeah, yeah. And I, I think it probably makes sense to also <laughs> maybe do a separate podcast that goes into <laughs> more depth on this stuff. Because <laughs> it, it sounds like we can go really deep here. And, and uh, thankfully, we've got an expert like uh, Eric Suford. So second article, acquisition and conversion costs threaten the mobile bust by gameindustry.biz. And so This article is largely based on a report from the marketing firm Liftoff that, amongst a lot of other things, reported that the average cost to acquire a paid user is around $35 on average. And based on this, the author forms, uh, at least from my read, five key conclusions. The first is that the cost of user acquisition for many firms is unappetizing and that because games have low rates of retention, that most of this money is wasted. The second is To reach the average spend, aggressive monetization becomes pretty much essential, and practices that were once a sign of developers getting greedy are now a baseline for any developer that wants to break even on their investment, and that was a quote from the article. Third is the only real way to differentiate in the market is through massive marketing spend. Fourth, the author implies that Apple Arcade is actually a potentially good alternative to the current situation. And uh, the author states, quote, if the current free-to-play climate is unsustainable, as liftoffs figures seem to imply, then perhaps there's a cold business calculus behind Arcade. And fifth, mobile becomes an even bigger winner-take-all market with little commercial room for anyone but the biggest winners. And uh, much of the free-to-play mobile space could be facing a serious decline. My own take on this is that I think this liftoff market report got a lot of coverage. A lot of people in particular reporting around this $35 average cost to acquire a paid user. And I just wanted to make a few points, at least from my perspective, which is first, on this podcast, we've spoken a lot about how we are increasingly moving towards a world of live operated games where these games last for years and people play them, you know, they're they're taking an increasing portion of people's time and attention. And so a lot of live operator free-to-play games, players will play these same games over over and over. And in today's market, they could be playing these games for several years. And, you know, just from my own personal experience, I know players that play, for example, Clash Royale, they paid two to $300 on that game. 
and they consider themselves actually extremely light payers. And uh, for me personally, I also fall into that category. And so from my perspective, at least in a world where, you know, I personally own, you know, at least five console games that I've paid two to $300 on, but I've likely played Clash Royale 10 times more than all five of those games combined. So I actually think $35 is not so bad. I also think the author may not quite understand the free-to-play live operated model that well. So I think there are some assumptions about what a product can bear from a cost perspective, which... Again, although $35 per pair may sound high to the author, from a free-to-play payer perspective, I actually don't think it's too bad. It's just, it's just a different model. And so, you know, it, like if you were to put, your, put on your, you know, free-to-play game PM hat on for a moment and think about the alternative, right? So if you think about $60 for a console PC game, a content-limited play experience, where actually the user takes all the risks that a game may be good or bad. So when you think about the opposite, that may actually sound a lot more expensive relative to the free-to-play model. And I think if you do a cost per hour of consumption analysis on free-to-play versus premium console or PC titles, I I think free-to-play actually wins pretty handily in terms of uh, entertainment per per hour. Uh, Finally, I just think that the author needs to keep in mind that user acquisition is an auction-based marketplace. So to some degree, just reading through the article, it seemed like the author was treating the cost like a fixed number. And again, assume that products can't sustain that number, but it may actually not be that high. And if products can't sustain that number in an auction-based marketplace, then the cost just goes down. But uh, so I, I kind of felt like the author uh, kind of reached a little too far with assumptions that, you know, may not actually be supported by the data available. But um, I'll, yeah, I'll open up to any other comments from, from you guys. Well, I actually completely agree with his overall conclusions. Uh, I don't know about the data that he's looking at. and I don't know about this firm at all. But uh, I think the article reinforces the fact that we're in a very mature market for mobile, where the bigger companies with resources have a huge distinct advantage over the smaller players. Um, and the interesting part, and I may have said this on the podcast before, is that mobile really only took a few years to get here. You know, for the console and PC market, that consolidation occurred over like a 20-year period. The irony is that, you know, mobile was billed as a much open platform you know, where small players um, can access the stores much more efficiently. And that's true. But I think the consolidation at the top has happened much faster for a variety of reasons, which I'm not going to go into right now. So, uh, I was at Niantic uh, last week, and you know they're all licking their wounds around uh, Harry Potter, and I it kind of just got to thinking about why games fail so often in mobile, <laughs> and and I think part of it's you know what their assumptions around the total addressable market are often wrong, um, and I think games like like uh, Harry Potter and things like Apple Arcade are constantly making the same mistake and not really understanding what the free-to-play mobile market, uh, addressable market is. Um, Because I think the fundamental assumption that people need to make is that mobile market, the addressable market is actually very, very small um, in general. So I'm going to try to break it down. These are not real numbers. So these are kind of like faux numbers, but I'll I'll get into real numbers after. But let's say we, according to Newzoo, we have a 1 billion mobile gamers in North America, Europe, and LATAM, which I consider the target market for any Western developer. Developers. So 15% of these gamers are likely to convert, or 150 million people. 
Um, and from my research and looking at things, and the 15% is based upon some research that was done as well. So 150 million people. And in my research also, the top 5% of those 150 million represent about 60 to 70% of the revenue. So we're talking about 7.5 million people that are driving mobile revenue in uh, the Western markets. So that's the audience you're developing for, right? And a majority of these people are in the tier one English countries. So that further narrows your target, right? So I think seven and a half million is a small market, right? And maybe it's 10 million, maybe it's 15 million, but it's still super small relative to the overall market of people that own smartphones. And if you look at something like a console, which is like a hundred million install base between Microsoft and Sony, that's, that's even, you know, it's a much larger market from that perspective. So let's look at a game. So I actually know more about this is that, you know, something like Marvel Concepts of Champions for our old friends at Kabam, you know, they've generated 150 million downloads at 800 million in revenue. So over its life, I bet 3% have converted or four and a half million. Of that 5% or 230,000 people represent 60 to 70% of the revenue. So over their life, these guys are likely spending like $2,300, which sounds insane, right? Who the hell spends $2,300 on a mobile game? But it gets worse. The top spenders, the top 10% represent like are 25 to 30 times the average. So they're spending $60,000 on, on a game like this. So... Anyway, what this means really is that you are building games that cater to the smallest segment of this audience that most people would consider a ridiculous amount of money. So when you design games, you have to design them like they can spend $60,000 and in order to drive the high LTVs, to drive the UA. And this is across most genres, including social casino, RPG, strategy, fighting, etc. So when you're in a market that requires insane amounts of money to spend uh, to acquire users, as, he, as the article suggests, then you need to features and loops that attract this very small addressable audience um, that actually spends. And ultimately, you're very limited in the type of games you can create. And that's exactly why something like uh, Harry Potter would never work, because I don't think there are many Harry Potter fanboys that are willing to spend $60,000 on that license. Do you know what I'm saying? So anyway... That's my general assumptions around mobile, and that's why I'm maybe very cynical about any game that comes out. <laughs> so there you go. Comments. Yeah, I think that that analysis is exactly correct. Um, I I would take a different approach to get there, right? So that's kind of like top down. I would look at bottoms up. Like if I look at those numbers. So first of all, I think that, and and I have a totally different interpretation of that article. I think it was totally misguided, right? I read that and I was like, "What are you talking about? This is great news." Um, Thirty-five dollars <laughs> per payer. That's amazing. <laughs> Like if you run, <laughs> if you operate a game um, that monetizes to that magnitude, um, to, to the magnitude that Eric's describing, thirty five dollars per payer is a bargain. And like I've never seen that number that low, even on like more casual games. Um, and second, you know, if I talk, if as as Joseph pointed out, this is an auction, right? So if the numbers are going up, that must mean people are getting better at monetizing, right? So if I can't my 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 um the, the competitive, so I think the competitive advantage you have at like let's say um a million plus in in monthly spend is probably like sophisticated ua infrastructure and a a knowledgeable team below that it's just being able to monetize a game and you know that that feels to me like the biggest bottleneck in the mobile gaming ecosystem it's not awesome ua people um there's probably a lack of them um but that comes later i think it's just to get off the ground you need awesome monetizing uh, monetization designers and there's just such a dearth of them. Now, there's a lot of people that have worked at big companies. I think this is the, this is the problem with like when people think about indies, 
they think about like, Hey, it's just some small studio and we're just starting up. Right. And, and, and it, it will, we'll get people from big companies cause they want to be a startup. That's not really an indie, right? Um, that's just a startup. And so what happens a lot of times is you get somebody who comes from one of these big legacy gaming companies and they were like, you know, Hey, I was a senior modernization manager. I was a senior PM. And like, oh, that's a, that's a really senior title. This guy must be, re- or this, this person must be really, really, really knowledgeable. And they just totally suck at modernization. Well, um, you see yeah, that happening I- a lot from big companies and so that's it and so they design a game that you can't monetize with that sort of like long tail LTV, ltv distribution as as eric mentioned or just can't really monetize at all and then they and then they launch it as like oh the ua uh ecosystem what a what a racket all you know all yeah. Facebook's ripping me off always like, blame no. it on ua right? <laughs> make a better yeah. mousetrap you know stop blaming ua i agree yeah but it's an auction so if you're not winning the auction why is that you can't monetize to the same degree as your competitors Mm-hmm. Right. So I, I see this when these numbers go up. I'm, I think it's great. I think it's like, wow, people are getting really, really good at monetizing. And, you know, I this and then I'm just not sympathetic to like the exploitative freemium design uh, uh, argument. I just don't think that exists. I don't think people hate these systems. I think they like them a lot. I think they like free. I think they like being able to buy whatever they want. I think they like being able to make a game a hobby. I think they like being able to connect with their friends and compete with them. I have no sympathy for this idea that, you know, there's a bunch of like, uh, PhD psychologist sitting around, sitting around in a room designing Skinner traps. Like this is not, this not been my experience working at a bunch of gaming companies. I've never heard of anybody doing that. Like these, these gaming companies, they build products that people love and that's why they get really big and make lots of money. Yeah. And I think part of, part of Kapam's success is that we focused on the VIPs that were spending insane amounts of money, because again, those are the ones that drive your, your LTVs and, and build features and, and, and systems that, cater to those and that that contradicts a little bit what you were saying earlier but i mean i i don't i'm not focusing on the 50 year old lady that's playing contest of champions because i know the likelihood of her to spend is very low right so it's like you focus on these 20 year old fanboys that just love the marvel universe and and are willing to spend whatever it takes to get the character that they want right so anyway moving on Let's go to Call of Duty because I want to. I really want to oh. rip you a new one on Call of Duty. Oh yes, finally we're talking about great games. So, so this is this has stirred a little bit of controversy, and I know Eric and I are on are on, are on totally opposite ends of of the of the opinion here because I think this is a fantastic game. Like honestly, I'm not a Call of Duty player, and this is. The most I've ever played Call of Duty, and I, I I can barely wait till this podcast recording finishes so I can play a match. Like I've been playing matches, like I could, I could take my daughter to daycare and I just sit in the car and play at least one battle. This is how good this is. And um, another note: uh, this article was from CNET, and I just have to say that the article says something about uh, Call of Duty launches after troublesome soft launch or troublesome launch period. I think it's one of the worst articles we had to refer from. So if JK, if we can continue never to to use CNET uh, or at least the person who wrote this article uh, as, a, as a reference because it was just honestly a, a list of tweets from Activision that were put together and Sensor Tower who provided the numbers and then done into an a article. So horrible. Anyway, so I've never been on a Call of Duty player, but this has me hooked and, and, and paying after just a couple of days. And what's best is like most of my friends are actually playing it, and I'm I'm playing with others around the world, and and even even in the studio, everybody's playing it. The viral effect is fantastic. It's really fun and rewarding to play together, and the early performance is incredibly good. So, 
they have two different versions. There's the Call of Duty, Call of Duty OG, the Call of Duty Mobile, and then there's the Garena version. And if you're wondering what the Garena version is, it's basically for Tier Three countries. And you can listen to the previous podcast episode where Eric dives deep into how Garena works, and and that's actually uh, one of the focus points of the previous podcast. And, but anyway, so by Friday, the game launched, I think, on Wednesday. And by Friday, it had more than 35 million downloads. And looking at the charts, the game is number one in installs naturally in, in U.S., but it's also number one grossing, which, you know, kind of makes sense when, when you're having so many installs. But it's not only U.S. It's actually number one grossing game in 122 countries. I looked at this yesterday. It's probably higher right now. But... The big question that, that we, we disagree with Eric is, is will this sustain? So, um, you know, is, is Call of Duty a mainstay on the top of the charts? Did Activision finally get it on mobile? And has AAA game, have they pushed onto mobile platforms? Or, and are the folks at, at King kind of beating themselves up for dropping the ball on this? Because at least, you know, they did a few different iterations of Call of Duty and never released anything. So... To kind of answer these questions, except the last one, uh, I would say that, you know, Call of Duty Mobile is developed by Tencent's Teamy Studio, and this is the same studio that is behind PUBG. And if you ever played PUBG, and if you, you know, even a little bit, you can clearly notice that it's it's almost pretty much the same game. So um, it's not an identical, but but definitely a, a, not a twin, but a brother for it, for sure. And everything from the UIs to the controls to the game modes, most of the game modes is, is the same. And the main difference is really the IP, which in, in terms of Call of Duty is not that different compared to PUBG. So the, the kind of like the main difference is this one is focusing on death matches and the PUBG is focusing on Battle Royale. But I think it's important to talk about PUBG, not just the fact that it's developed in the same studio, but but that PUBG has grown the gross revenues from 25 million in August of 2018 to slightly more than 160 million last month alone. And that's an increase of about 540% in revenues. So Call of Duty Mobile looks to be making money everywhere else except China, while PUBG makes the majority of the revenue in China. To look at the percentages a little bit in, in more details, PUBG makes 56% of revenue in China, while only 17 in the US, versus Call of Duty makes 44% of revenue in the US, and actually 16% coming in from Japan and not a lot from, from China. I don't know if it's even launched there because of it's quite violent. So these facts are important because Teeny has proven to be able to not only run this game, but also generate billions from it. Uh, the Garena version is smart to launch at the same time because it captures the tier three countries. And what we're seeing is really small cannibalization between PUBG and Call of Duty. And even here at the studio, uh, there's a lot of players who play PUBG and have been playing for a long time. They're not really jumping in on Call of Duty. So everybody else who's jumping on Call of Duty are the players who are not really interested in that PUBG. And if I have to make a prediction, which I know I have to, uh, whether this game will be a, a, a mainstay or, or just a, a big you know pop and drop, I would say... They, I would say it will, and I would say the effects that this game is is going to have are pretty significant. I'd say games with really high DAU, like these mid-core games with really high DAU, uh, for example, you know, Brawl Stars and Clash Royales and Robloxes and Fortnites and Minecrafts. I think they're going to take a hit because when I play this game and I and I, if I ever put the sounds on, there's a lot of kids, you know, pre-puberty talking a lot of stuff, and and um, 
those are pretty much you know the audience for 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 those other games and i think activision uh seeing this success will really double down on mobile and probably focus a lot on internal development because they will see a lot of revenues going to Timi and then they probably think they can do better themselves. Mm-hmm. I think EA is going to, you know, bank quite heavily on Apex Mobile, seeing the success of Call of Duty. Uh, I think mobile influencers are going to get paid a lot in the future as, as, as um, there will be, a, you know, focus on, on getting them to grow your game. And I think smaller first-person shooter games like, like Guns of Boom or or critical ops or whatnot, there's a lot of those. They're going to be in trouble uh, because there's there's really no point in, in playing any other FPSs than, than this anymore. So Eric Kress is making a lot of noises because he wants to, he wants to rant and I've triggered him so hard. I actually started, I actually started triggering him yesterday on it and he's been sitting on it and he's going to burst. So Eric, please just one, one thing before Eric jumps in, sorry, just to confirm the developer, yeah. just because we've been called out on this before, right, Joseph, uh-huh. right. Um, the developer of PUBG mobile is Lightspeed and quantum. No. Right. And Timmy, Timmy worked on a PUBG Mobile, but that game was was not right, launched. Right. Yeah, yeah. So Timmy has experience with PUBG Mobile, but they're not the developer of PUBG Mobile. Oh, as we know. oh. actually, okay. that's that explains a lot of things. Okay, first of all, you are so wrong. Oh, first of all, <laughs> I have to admit, you you effectively trolled me in a big way yesterday, and I I generally do not take the bait, but I was I was I was livid and angry <laughs> and physically. Um, so uh, you are uh, so absolutely wrong on this fucking game. I mean, the game. It, okay, I will get. I'll give you this. The game is amazing, right? The game is really well designed, but it's full of bots. So the only reason that you're actually killing anybody is because they're not real people, first of all. So y- your <laughs> skills still suck, right? You still don't know how to play shooters. You don't know how to play console games. Okay, that's the first thing. The second thing is that this thing is doing eight cent RPIs in the first week. I mean. That is tragic, right? It should be generating extremely amounts more money with this golden cohort, right? So you can't scale a game at eight cents. You know, it's like it's mind-boggling to me. You know, something like something like uh, Pokemon Go were like at like a dollar by this point. You know, I mean, it was insane, right? So they can't. You can't. You can't scale that. So this and Mario Kart are basically the two sides of the same coin. The only major difference is by almost all reporting is that Call of Duty is actually a good game, right? And, you know, both are downloading a gajillion times, but both are, both are monetizing at like 10 cents, you know? Like, you know, Mario Kart's at 180 million, 108 million downloads and 13 million in revenue for the first week or so at 12 cents per download. And Call of Duty's at 85 million downloads and 7 million in revenue, 8 cents per download. And so maybe... Uh, maybe the, the, the data is not quite as accurate but on the download side, but it should be accurate on the revenue side because they, they can predict, predict a lot of that, um, particularly as it was going up. So anyway, I just think it's impossible to scale the games at these, at these levels. Um, and I think uh, the, re- the retention is going to be an issue as well. The company keeps talking about retention. Analysts on Wall Street think this thing could do like 500 million to a billion. I think fundamentally that Maybe they get to 200 million downloads and do 100 to 150 million in revenue. I think both games are actually very similar in what the the, the, the potential are. Um, and and I'm going to disagree with you again. I don't think EA should bring Apex to mobile. I don't think Apex is going to work. It's first person. It's very you know hardcore. I think it has its place on PC and console. And Activision should not ever 
internally develop a, a mobile game and King should stay the hell away from anything besides puzzles. Um, <laughs> well, I, I disagree on everything except the last notion. So that's... <laughs> Uh, yeah i'll I'll cover this as well just because like i'm also a big fan of the game i think they did a great job Uh, we've covered this also a lot while it was in soft launch um yeah of course it's built with similar to PUBG mobile um but big things at least as a personal fan of call of duty took a lot of the tried and true progression system in terms of unlocking slowly unlocking strategic options and I think their implementation of the battle pass loot boxes, as well as that deep progression of unlocking pieces that slowly kind of um, increase your arsenal is a great fair to play kind of setup uh, where like all weapons and attachments are actually you know somewhat balanced. So there isn't any say clearly better loadout than others, yet still giving a pretty clear shifting meta as well as clear progression targets. So players um, are gonna be continually grinding this game for a while. Um, definitely should not be compared to Mario Kart Tour. I think this game is significantly better than that. Um, so yeah, the, the one note that I'm gonna make on here kind of goes back to Eric's points on like mobile market and uh, DAC and like how this really, really matters for COD Mobile. Because as we know, the core customers of Call of Duty are eventually gonna be shifting back to PC console when Modern Warfare is released. That is where the dominant platform is. But the audience for this game is probably a lot more of these kind of tertiary Call of Duty fans where there are definitely plenty over the decade that they've been making Call of Duty. Um, Churn players don't have the time plays of the platforms to play Call of Duty Modern Warfare. So core fans, as well as core fans when they're bored, will probably have some time to actually play this game on mobile. So my sense is this will be the tertiary COD audience running this. Um, But I still think there's still plenty of reasons why this game will continue uh, far better than Mario Kart Tour. Yeah, but the question is, is there a reason to spend on this game? And that's like the anecdotal, what I'm hearing is that you don't, you can play and and be competitive, which particularly because people are playing against bots like uh, Mishka, but, uh, (laughs) but like, is there a reason really to spend on this? Uh, Yes. I've Yeah, so I've like spent. if you if you think about the economy difference between this and PUBG Mobile, and I think uh, JK and I are going to do a bit more of a deeper dive specifically on that. Um, like it is a cosmetic driven economy, right? Um, but their battle pass and their um, uh, progression system does give you plenty of reasons to actually upgrade your weapons, so you have all the attachments so you can play in the game. Um, so yes, I would probably actually compare it much closer to PUBG Mobile, which while, yeah, right now they're sitting at 15 cents RPI at the beginning, right? Like if we actually look at the launch windows closed, they both started at like far less than 25 cents RPI. Uh, but now PUBG Mobile has grown well over $3. I think it's over $4 now in the U S unified across Google play and iPhone. Um, so yeah, I I think this game can get over 200 mil. You think it could get over 200 mil in, in 12 months? Yeah, I can. Yeah. All right, I'll take the under on that, right? I'll, be, I'll, be, I'll, I'll, be, <laughs> yeah, that's I'll bet you that, dinner. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> I don't but bet actually, too often, it, but uh, yeah, no, I feel like this game is a good game. So I'm, the, the idea that it can be directly comparable to Mario Kart Tour is just fundamentally wrong. Okay. I uh, I will t- I will rescind my com- comparison to Mario Kart, but I what I what my my point was is that they download a gajillion times and don't monetize, and the fact that they're downloading that much does not necessarily mean like like you take every Rovio game ever made, right? They download a gajillion times, but they make no money, right? So that's what I'm talking about um, with with the comparison there. But um, 
but even at 200 million, right? Like that's just absolutely not material for, <laughs> for, uh, for Activision, you know, where they're going to do, they're going to get a very small percentage of that because they didn't develop the game. And so when I, when I'm, my lens is basically that people are saying 500 million to a billion dollars, like PUBG performance worldwide. And I just don't think they're going to ever get there on this game. Yeah, I'd agree with that, but it's going to probably fall in some region between 200 and 500. Okay. All right. We will see. Yeah. Maybe just move on to the next article. I know. Sure. Sorry, lots of discussion. Um, so this one's a double article. Uh, I just wanted to bring up the attention around these transparent loot boxes. Um, so there's two big articles this week. Uh, one was around Counter-Strike Go uh, and one was around Rocket League. So in the case of uh, Counter-Strike, uh, limited to France, so only within uh, France, uh, players can actually see the contents of a loot box before they actually purchase it. Um, and secondly, Rocket League uh, has just um, implemented, I think it's actually in the game now, where you actually get give instead of blind loot boxes, now the game gives blueprints, which allows players to actually see what they're going to get before they get the loot box. Um, so in general, this is kind of an increasing trend amongst uh, larger developers where they're starting to experiment with loot box variants. Um, this could be in response to FTC, um, but also just this week in Europe. Um, they refuse to restrict loot boxes, so it doesn't look like there'll be any sort of legislation coming, at least in Europe. As we've covered before, legislation is only likely to come from kind of banning payouts from these loot box systems. Um, but, you know, child protection is also likely, at least in my opinion. Um, interestingly, it seems to be a big push from Epic um, on its internal studios, likely because they've seen the massive success with their Battle Pass system. Uh, Fortnite Save the World tried to remove blind loot boxes before, but that game was kind of dead by then anyway, so it's kind of an odd comparison. Um, but like with Rocket League, this will be their first big test of of applying it there. And I just personally, I, I, I will be very, very surprised if they can find success with this because I just don't believe that the Fortnite metrics for Battle Passes will map exactly to other games. I think that that's definitely an outlier. Um, so yeah, probably a false assumption there. Uh, Supercell, as we reported before, have been trying with this. So Rush Wars experimented with having transparent loot boxes, uh, but they actually flipped back to blind loot boxes uh, and their grossing rank actually grew, uh, but just temporarily. Um, my recommendation with any of this stuff is that the power of blind loot boxes is very, very hard to avoid. Uh, what it drives for spend depths and gains in games, especially what I would call like with finite durable economies. So this is typically games with a lot of cosmetics or say strategic choices, like I just mentioned with Call of Duty and not near infinite vertical stats power, like a 4X game, right? Where like content is, is, is a, a lot more infinite. Um, it's just clear and just not sustainable if, if you're not using these types of systems. The reality is that designers really only have a few ingredients that they can work with when p pacing economies. That's skill, luck, time, currencies, and stats. And if you take away luck, what you're left with is systems that are either going to alienate players with skill or require an astronomical cost in the form of, say, currencies or time. Uh, which will end up kind of driving just as much backlash, in my opinion. And I've seen it actually just this week with things like Ghost Recon. Uh, wild, uh, what was it called? Is it Wildlands? Goes Breakpoint, that's what it's called. Uh, what I would recommend in this stead is actually use a hybrid approach, is that you use uh, battle passes, direct purchase, uh, as well as blind loot boxes, um, all kind of in, in hybrid. Use battle passes for conversion, direct purchase for price anchoring, and loot boxes for spend depth, uh, which gives players additional pass, 
especially for players who choose not to use them. Uh, even offer, say, one or two items in a pack as transparent to kind of drive VIP or subscriptions. So if you own VIP, then you actually get uh, a couple transparent items. Uh, but the rest are still blind for that increased entry fee. Uh, and I would say one example here is definitely Apex Legends does this combo very well, uh, where they use the combination of direct purchase, battle pass, and loot boxes to get kind of the best in all the hybrid. Eric? I don't know. All I got to say is I'm kind of sick of this loot box, loot box, loot box, loot box bullshit, right? It's like at the end of the day, <laughs> it's a model that works and the debate is seems ridiculous because they're not illegal. They're just predatory. So get used to it, you know? Um, and, I, and I think the consumer doesn't give a shit, right? If you look at NBA 2K20, it has like a 0.7 user score, right? Out of a five. And I'm my understanding is that this thing is up 20 to 25% this year, you know, on, on, <laughs> on microtransactions. Right. You know, I think people are better complaining or not the market that people are, who are spending that, that enjoy these systems. So get over it and stop. And I, I, I just don't think it, it can be litigated in this way um, to, 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 uh, for, you know, um, make it illegal. So I, anyway, enough of this enough on this. It's 0.7 out of 10, by the way. <laughs> oh, sorry. Sorry. 0.7 out of 10. Exactly. Much better. Um, yeah. Anyway, I don't know. All right. On a positive note, uh, Facebook announces the last article. Facebook's, we'll try to do this fast. Facebook announces mm-hmm. Horizon, a VR massively multiplayer world. Um, so basically, this is Zuckerberg's version of the metaverse from Ready Player One, um, and it starts next year sometime. So you know, when I was at Niantic after after me like completely ripping apart mobile, uh, you know, one of the guys asked me, "What what are you excited about in this industry? Like, where where are we in the early parts of the hockey stick?" And uh, he was a much more eloquent person than I was, but uh, smart guy. But anyway, I think there's some real opportunities with these type of ideas. You know, things like Horizon and Roblox, which um, I think would create opportunities for both big and small developers alike uh, and also appeal to more of a mass market game, mass market audience, uh, unlike a lot of what's being built out there. But my, my, you know, my thinking of building something like the metaverse uh, would create a platform by which people could develop small and big experiences and again, attract a better audience, take advantage of the cloud technology, allow for a variety of different genres and experiences and create like a social environment for everybody. Now, I know it's like far off, like we're not talking like two or three years, we're talking five to 10 years. But I, I, I think that could be really, really interesting to bring more people into interactive in general. Um, I'm not necessarily convinced it's VR, but also could incorporate VR. But I think that's kind of the most thing I'm excited about. And I think there's a lot of teams that are out there that are trying to embrace experiences like this, things like Singularity 6, um, you know, this uh, Soderlands and Bark, obviously uh, both Minecraft and, and um, Roblox, et cetera. And so with Facebook getting into the mix um, and with the VR platform and their, you know, insane amounts of money to throw it against this, I think it kind of excites me. You know, I think, I think this is something that's like, could be the, you know, longer term future of, of, of interactive for more of the mass market, which incorporates both the core experiences, but as well as more casual experiences for the mass market. But that, again, I don't know if Facebook's going to execute against it. I just know, I think that someone will ultimately. This is the one thing you're excited about? <laughs> Well, compared no, no, to mobile, like, like, 
<laughs> no, I'm just like Eric, like the most cynical person and like loves the most yeah. corporate the most corporate presentation that I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> like, I'm not talking about I said I'm not talking about Facebook. I'm talking about the idea behind it, not the Facebook. Okay, so, but like the, the idea is not even the VR thing. It was like just because it's broad and it hooks up to the cloud. Which is like sure, like I think that that aspect is interesting and I think that's very forward thinking. But like VR, not that exciting. Facebook, and yeah. like honestly, like this presentation looked like they were selling Microsoft Connect again. Like it looks stupid. <laughs> Sorry, Eric, go go ahead. Yeah. So I, I think the big point here is that this coming from Facebook is not that exciting. I don't think Facebook is creative enough to pull this off. Facebook is an advertising company that is has a decent ish track record at MA. Um, but they're not a creative company. Um, and I think that's the fundamental problem with VR as well. It's just that these games, it's, it's, there's a, these are very, very big projects, right? Um, and so you need a lot of resources to build something like this, especially, but even any kind of VR game, um, it, it, it's not a small undertaking. And, and, uh, and, and so only the kind of big companies um, have, you know, even, even really attempted um, in earnest. Uh, so this, to me, I think I, I agree with Eric that I think this is a cool concept. I think the killer application for VR is probably as like a buddy um, or like an ancillary access point to like a bigger game that's just like cross-platform. But I don't think this is it. I don't think the, the, the VR killer product is a standalone thing. I don't know. Maybe I'm crazy, but have, have any of you guys played anything that uh, that's compelling on VR? I mean, for me personally, the only thing that I've played is like Beat Saber, which is, you know, kind of cool. But everything else doesn't seem very compelling to me and and usually like the vr guys when they talk about oh this is such an amazing game it seems like they're kind of grading on the curve right so like mm -hmm. the, the crap is like a b plus and anything that's kind of decent is like amazing yeah. <laughs> to the vr guys so i i don't know i i i think if if anything it's it's definitely far off uh and then the, the other thing is why, why does nobody have legs in horizons right like what's what's wrong with legs on avatars but anyway Man, you guys, you guys, you guys are a bunch of haters, dude. Have some vision, dude. You guys have been living. I, you know, I, I went. I, I listened to twenty five minutes of of nonsense about UA and all this like strategy around UA. You can't like think out of the box. Like, the long term vision of interactive for a moment. Come on, man. Get out of the weeds, dude. Come and come enjoy the forest, right? Yeah. After trashing Call of Duty, come on, man. No, no, the best VR game. If you actually want to check it out, it's called Trover Saves the Universe. It's by the guy who does Rick and Morty. It's really, really funny. It's actually one of the best VR experiences that I've had. But to be honest, you could have that on. Like you can also buy it without the VR experience, and it's just as good. So that's that's typical. Yeah. How about Damian Kim? Is he offering VRs for everybody on this podcast? Or what, what? <laughs> I know. I, no. I still haven't got my discount code yet. <laughs> God dang it! Uh, God damn it! <laughs> All right. Well, I think that's all right. It. So, final shout out to Eric. We need to give a shout out to Eric Suford's uh, blog, Mobile Dev yeah. Memo. Eric, what's what's latest with Mobile Dev Memo? Uh, I think there's uh, there's two events coming in. Yeah. So I'm hosting a workshop series. Um, it's three workshops over the course of October. I just did the first one in New York. I think it went very well. Got two more coming up this month. Uh, one in San Francisco in nine days on the 16th, and then one in London on the 30th, which is uh, it's over oversubscribed, so uh, that one's booked. But um, this, there's there's still two spots left at the San Francisco one. Um, you can read more at mobiledevmemo.com. And also in May, I launched a website called Quantmar, which is kind of a stack 
overflow for uh, quantitative marketers. Um, if you're interested in quantitative marketing topics, you can feel free to stop by there and uh, contribute or just upvote or just read. Awesome. All right, guys. I think that does it. Catch you all later. Bye. Bye. Bye.